0: Titus chapter 3, we are beginning to land the plane on this summer sermon series. Thankful for all the men who have been um, giving of themselves to preach while Dave is away. Titus 3, beginning in verse 8 on through verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Reed, we know you and love you. Preach God's word. Thank you. Amen.
1: Uh, it is really good to be here. And of course, this is, isn't this awful? You invite somebody over to your house, and the first thing they do is rearrange the furniture. Um, so wouldn't happen ordinarily, but thank you for accommodating me, and especially for You know, I know it's not listed in the Old Testament, but uh, one of the trials of Job this morning is that he gave up his chair. Uh, So thank you, Job, for for giving up your chair. Uh, I've been fortunate to watch all of this online. Uh, One of the things that I've been grateful for in the entire COVID uh, era is that more and more people have entered into uh, having things online and streaming and so I've been able to watch your entire series so far and it's been a real blessing for me uh, to be able to do that and then kind of come in here and tag almost near the end um, and uh, as we said try to try at least put the uh, the plane in a landing pattern as we go closer to the closing this out uh, and given the heat uh, it is my desire that one of two things happen this morning either you um, rise up Um, uh, inspired or wake up refreshed i'm uh, i'm good with either one of those Um, let's let's go back to the section i've been given it starts in verse 8 and ends in verse 11 and paul opens with referring to quote a trustworthy saying that saying he says makes it imperative for titus to insist on some certain things And these are the things Paul says uh, Titus is to insist on. Verse 8. The things he's to insist on, not to suggest, or even just remind them of, he calls good works. And then he notes a couple of things about these. He says first that they are excellent and profitable for people. As excellent, the word unpacked gives us the idea that they're beautiful. That they're noble. They even carry some, some sense of being wonderful with them. Uh, that reaches back, really, to earlier in this small letter, which is uh, in chapter 2 and verse 10. Uh, they're the things which adorn the gospel. Like a perfect frame sets off the beauty of a, a terrific painting. Good works are designed to make the gospel attractive. They show the Christian life to be something that's orderly and put together well and and not freewheeling and just up to what anybody wants to think it might be. Um, When we live a life under the auspices of the gospel, there should be an orderliness to it and it's not a, uh, a lone ranger kind of thing where we get to make it up as we go along. The second thing he says is that they are profitable. And and they're profitable in two ways, good works. They're profitable for the lost in that it exposes them to the gospel in the best possible light. They get to see the gospel's transforming power in our lives as we manifest the character of Christ. And then secondly, they're profitable for the believer as well. Uh, As we learn to grow more and more in the likeness of Christ and as we expose one another to the character of Christ, as we interact with one another, uh, so that uh, each one encounters the Spirit through us, and that Spirit who births in us, what we read in Galatians, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, uprightness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what people should be, getting from us but then he notes a third thing in that opening verse and that these good works whatever they are and we're going to get to that in a minute are the opposite the exact opposite of what brings damaging division to the body of christ and so much so is it the opposite that those who ignore these good works as he's going to outline them are to be admonished only twice this isn't three strikes and you're out it's two strikes and you're out it's it's a really serious proposition that he's bringing to us so dangerous to the spiritual life of the local church is the neglect of these good works that those refusing to walk in them cannot be tolerated in the assembly for very long so this is a a heavy duty passage you might not think that right out of the gate but it is So the importance of what Paul's getting at here is couched in very urgent and serious terms. And so here's a good question for us, and I'll just toss this out right at the very beginning. Do you and I carry the fragrance of these things in ourselves so that they perfume the air around us? So that others catch a whiff of Christ when they encounter us? that's what he's after but i digress we've got to stick with the passage here and so what is the trustworthy saying that paul referred to when he opened up verse eight the saying is trustworthy and i want you to insist on these things and that's in the preceding four verses so back up just a little bit go back up to verse four but when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the logic runs like this, that being saved wholly by grace, A., B, and having been washed and renewed by the Spirit, and C, since we're justified by grace, and D, having become heirs with the hope of eternal life, then Christians are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Good works. And before we go a step further, I want to remind us that this portion marks out good works as the result of having been saved by grace. Notice the way that he worded that in the verses we just read. Having already been washed and renewed by the Spirit, having already been justified by His grace, and been made heirs of eternal life. This is not a path to salvation. It is the path of the already saved. The great confusion that happens... In false religion, and especially in false Christianity, and there is a a false Christianity, is any notion that good works somehow can justify us before God, can get us declared righteous before God, can earn us the, uh, the qualification of being called sons and daughters of God. Good works are the necessary, and I want to put that word in there, the necessary result of having been saved. And, and never contribute to that salvation, except in the sense, again, that they adorn the gospel of Christ. And it's, it's easy to overlook that fact, that the, the passage before us today is predicated on such an insistent man, command. It's so tied to what we really might not give a whole lot of thought to. Good works turn out to be far more important and deeply spiritual than most of us often consider. And yet, surprisingly, if you've been following the, the series all the way through, good works pervades this short letter. If I might jump ahead to a conclusion, let me tack this in your mind before you fall asleep, and then maybe when you wake up it'll still be there. And it's just this, that a theology that does not translate into how we live our lives before God and man is a dead orthodoxy that we can hold securely in our minds even as we trail off to hell. Let me repeat that. A theology which does not translate into how we live our lives before God and men is a dead orthodoxy which we can hold securely in our minds even as we trail off to hell. So we've got to be careful that we make some really good distinctions here. We dare not take the repeated references to good works in this short letter as mere good Christian or biblical advice. And so much of preaching and teaching today tends to fall into that category. It's just kind of good biblical advice. It's not, not really demanded of us in any way. But these good works that he's going to work through... Are absolutely indispensable to the truly regenerate life, and where they're missing, the truth is salvation itself is most likely missing as well. So I don't want us to miss the gravity of Paul's insistence here, and and I want it, so it doesn't get biased as though it's just some form of moralism, nice ideas, goody-two-shoes religiosity that 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 uh, good works are, you know, helping old ladies across the street. That may be a good thing to do, but it isn't what he's referring to in this letter and what he's going to be unpacking for us. So it's absolutely vital to being a true Christian. So having said that, we need to revisit the topic, not as Scripture laying down, and please hear this. I'll come back to this before we're done. This is not Scripture laying down an additional group of burdensome commands. But instead, it's intended to help us see how grace frees us to walk severed from the chains of the old life. How it frees us up to live in an entirely new way. So, let's start to unpack what's in front of us. And in order to do that, we're going to have to back up some. Besides good works being excellent and profitable for people, we're told two important and interesting things about good works earlier in the letter and I'll, you know this letter is short it's only 46 verses when it's all said and done and so let me take you to back to chapter 1 and verse 16 chapter 1 and verse 16 he talks about those who profess to know god but deny him by their works and what about these they are detestable disobedient and unfit for any good work. In other words, those who profess to know Christ, and he's going to tell us about this again in a second, but seek to introduce either myths or the commandments of men into their Christianity, actually deny Christ by their works. That's pretty potent. Those who profess to know Christ but seek to introduce myths or commandments of men into their Christianity actually deny him by their works. matter of fact, so defiling are these two things, the introduction of myths into our Christian doctrine and the making of the commandments of men as binding on the consciences and souls of God's people, that they make the person unfit for any good work. That's really a stunning statement. It's it's outlandish. We need to let that sink in for just a second. Isn't it true, I know it's been true in my own life at times, that we can think some people may may err a bit on the side of being scoundrels, but then we say, but look at the good things they've done. To use an extreme and an absurd example... There were those who back when Hitler was in power in Germany would say, yes, he's doing a lot of horrible things, but he makes the trains run on time. As though that, that excuses something, as though that, that mitigates the evil. As though our idea of good works somehow mitigates unChrist-like behavior. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Scripture says not so. For any good work to have value before God, it must be married to those who are living out the character of Christ as well. Otherwise, we're actually, according to this passage, pronounced unfit for doing good works. Bad character actually mitigates our works. And conversely, Good works can't mitigate our bad character. I might say this is something we ought to keep in mind when we've even talk politics. Any supposed good works done by those who bring into their Christianity one or both of these two things, the commandments of men, Or myths, and this happens in the church all the time. If you don't think there's myths alive in the church today, just go on YouTube. It's crazy. Or the commandments of men, which of course Paul deals with in a lot of places. The Judaizers bringing circumcision in as necessary for salvation and things of that nature. You bring those things into Christianity and they automatically negate your ability to even do good works and will ultimately be condemning. That's seriously strong language. But remember, that was way back in chapter 1 when he first addressed good works. The second thing he notes is found for us in 2.7, if you've got your Bible. There he admonishes Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Those two have to be brought together. Titus himself is to be a model of good works. Now, this emphasis on good works isn't peculiar to Titus. Paul has picked this up from somewhere previously, uh, not the least of which would be in Matthew 5 where Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, Mount that part of being salt and light in the earth, is to let our good works shine in such a way that they glorify the Father who's in heaven. Let me just do a sub thing on that real quick. There's a saying that's become very popular. It was resurrected a few years ago. I've heard it a lot lately. Uh, It's probably errantly uh, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. But the quote is this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Close quote. That sounds so spiritually quippy, but it's actually rotten theology. Empty symbolism is useless. Actions need to be explained if people are to glorify our Father as a result of having done them. Symbolic, empty symbolism is useless. Uh, symbolic actions, apart from explanation, is the equivalent to speaking in tongues without interpretation. It's both unloving and it's unfruitful. You may think you're doing symbolic things out in the world, but if they aren't explained to anybody, they are meaningless because anybody can pour any interpretation into them they want. That's why we have to be vocal about the gospel and why it's the scripture that calls us to do and to act certain ways and not just be nice people. Uh, So Jesus addresses that in Matthew 5. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that good works are so much a part of our being saved that we are said to be, quote, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God commanded, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's part and parcel of, of what we're actually made for or recreated in Christ. Or in 2 Timothy 3, where we're told the Scripture is given to us so that we might be completely equipped to do those good works. So however we define good works, and we're going to get to that in a minute, Scripture says we need biblical equipping in order to actually do them. And good works apparently go beyond just being nice and doing nice things for people. Way beyond that. And here, as a divine command... Going back to our immediate text, good works are to be insisted upon by church leadership for those of us in the pew. Now the problem, of course, here comes when we try to define good works. How do we define that? And it's a bit like trying to define art. My wife loves art, and she'll drag me to art museums from time to time, there's some art I can appreciate, and some art I think is just dumb. Um, you know, a, a monkey can throw paint against the wall. That, that doesn't make it art. But what does make it art? You know, it, it's a tough one. Is what Rembrandt did art, or is the Velvet Elvis that's hanging in my basement art? Art. And it's up to my personal opinion or my preference or my taste that's the way we might define art It's a hard one or or how do we define love? When the Bible calls us to love one another, what does that mean to you and me or to others it's a nice It's a nebulous term unless we define it somehow. To my wife, love means taking out the garbage without being asked to me. Love is my wife holding my hand when we drive. We have two very different definitions. And in the broader context, do we have a a concept of what it means, the command in Scripture, to love one another? What does that look like? Does that just mean have warm fuzzies for each other? I mean, we're to love even our enemies, people we don't like. Maybe a lot of people in our church. We have to love them even if we don't like them. But we would be wise to go to Scripture for those definitions, and it's the same with good works. Fortunately, Titus, because he unpacks good works so much, it's the one place where it's unpacked more than any other in all of Scripture, and there are four sections where Paul references and builds us this picture of good works, and in doing so, he appears to give us categories of good works. And if you're keeping your notes this morning, that's where we're going to be going. Uh, These may differ considerably from what you or I might call to mind automatically if we haven't taken these passages into full account. Now, the first three places that he mentions good works have already been preached on. So I don't have to redo that. I can just survey that kind of quickly for you. But I want to tie it all together. And then we'll go on and add the fourth. I want to tie all these passages together and then add the fourth one. So, going back to chapter 2 and verse 11. Let's look at verses 11 through 14 just briefly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live Good works and worldview. And you know what your worldview is. It's the underlying realities that inform how we Christians are to understand and perceive and, and interact with the world around us. That's what a worldview does. But worldview and how we perceive the governing realities of life can shift over time. When I was little, and we lived in the city, um, I thought everybody went to bed when the streetlights came on. That was my worldview. Streetlights came on, we had to come into the house, we had to go to bed. And then I found out, wait a minute, television is on till really late. That shifted my worldview. Then I found out television was on 24 hours a day. That totally revolutionized my worldview. I found out there's people up all night doing all sorts of things, and, and I wanted to grow into that. So my, my worldview began to change. Al Mohler is constantly reminding us, if you listen to any of his broadcasts, that we live in a a post-Genesis 3 world. We live in a world that's after the fall. And that's impacted everything that goes on around us. Or Abraham Kuyper, the great theologian of the Netherlands in the late 1800s, uh, just over into the 20th century, he repeatedly reminded Christians not to accept the world around us as normal, but as woefully abnormal, that everything in our present world has been distorted by sin. He talked about it like the fact that we look at the world today and we're actually looking at something more like a photographic negative. We're not seeing the color. We just see the black and white of the negative because everything has been so impacted by sin. So in this portion uh, where where. Paul says Christ is securing for Himself a people who are given to the good works that are listed in this passage. Five of these worldview good works are listed in these verses. The first is the worldview of the Christian in renouncing, if you're filling in the blanks, ungodliness and worldly passions. That's got to be the Christian's worldview. That we live constantly renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions to to renounce something is to deny any relationship or association with it that's not part of who i am in christ that's not part of how i'm supposed to live my life and ungodliness is anything that is contrary or at odds with god's holiness or his own character and so part of my worldview must be that that's the way i'm meant to live life To renounce those things, worldly passions, you know what they are, the desires that are common to those without Christ and who are still only living in the flesh. What John mentions in 1 John as the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The things I want to possess, the things I want to experience or, or the things I want to feel, and lastly the ways I want myself and others to think about me admiringly. He says, no, we we renounce that way of life. We separate ourselves from thinking that way. We have a different worldview. And secondly, B, living, again, filling in the blanks, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, in our present circumstances, refusing to excuse sin by appealing to our circumstances, whatever they may be. Don't you always love it when you hear somebody say, well, so-and-so made me do it? Well, yeah, when you're four years old, that might work. When you're 40, if you're still saying things like that, you have no idea what it means to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in your present circumstances. Now, that's what he's calling us to. I just read this quote the other day. Get this quote. Quote, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter in front of company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. It was written by Socrates 400 years before Christ. Our present day is no excuse. Our present circumstances are really no different. We're still in the same post-Genesis 3 world. Third, living in the expectancy of Christ's return and reign. Honestly, having that as part of my static mindset that Christ is going to come and is going to reign again. As a matter of fact if you've been praying about what's going on in Afghanistan, there is one final answer to Afghanistan, and it's the return of Christ. And if we're not crying out for that, even as we sang this morning, for our own nation, it's the return of Christ that will deliver us. Not a new political move. Not some sort of military action. Not some leader who can come to the forefront. It is Christ coming to assume His throne that will transform the world. And we, do we live with that mindset or do we sink to something else? And then fourth, living as redeemed from lawlessness. That we don't view grace as license, but that God has freed us from the bondage of lawlessness where we constantly have to struggle against every restraint of God's order in society that He's put upon us. And then lastly, lastly, living as a people who are God's own possession rather than thinking of ourselves as our own possession. That old poem, I am the captain of my soul, I'm the master of my fate, that's a lie, especially for the Christian. Only Christ can be the captain of our souls and the master of our fate. And if we live with a mindset that I'm my own man, And we've forgotten, Christ has purchased you with His blood. You serve Him, not yourself. So there's this worldview, and it takes work to develop that biblical worldview. This is why it's couched in the terms of being good works here. It takes work to live in a world as God sees it. And and, and far less work, though, than living constantly... Defile, with a constantly defiled conscience and in the unbearable weight of the aftermath of being bound to our sins. This is a pleasant work in comparison. To live life seeing the way it really is rather than the way the world around us wants to make it think reality is. That takes constant work. We instinctively fall back into our fallen sense of it. We fall back into looking to the world around us for comfort and for safety and for power. Matter of fact, if there is anything the Christian, the the human being abhors more than anything else, it's powerlessness. And yet it is our absolute powerlessness to be righteous before God that is the only means whereby we can come to salvation. And it's living in the reality of that powerlessness before God that gives us freedom. I don't have to have power in the world. I don't have to have power over the governor, over the president, over the Congress. I serve the living God who has power over everything. So we can give up that sense of trying to seize it by worldly means. The world around us functions that way, and it draws us back into thinking that way all the time. And it's why the internet just explodes with people referred to, is there a more ridiculous term? Influencers. Influencers. Moppets who try to tell us this is the way you ought to look and this is the way you ought to live. It's lunacy. So Paul warns in Romans 8, 5, and 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and what? Peace. Why are so many of us today, even Christians, found among the company of the perpetually agitated, fearful, and irritated. Because we're not engaged in the good work of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit rather than on the things of the flesh. We're all caught up with what people do, not with what Christ has done. We're not doing the good work of building and maintaining and living in a biblical worldview. Secondly, Paul addresses good works and relationships. He does this in the beginning of chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. Remind them, says Paul, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, what are the the round of good works that he mentions in this portion again we've got five or six of them first being submissive to authorities others have preached on that I don't have to today second refraining from speaking evil of others no Facebook is not permission to, to wage target practice on everybody else's character third third refusing to be quarrelsome. I'll tell you, it's hard to refuse to be quarrelsome because a lot of people are really stupid. And so quarrelsomeness, you know, just seems kind of the natural and right response. But you know, Paul says, no, no, part of our good works is to refuse to be quarrelsome. You have to refuse it because it's, it's natural to be quarrelsome. Uh, how about doing this good work in your own home, refusing to be quarrelsome? Husbands, wives, children. She started it. She always starts it. Refuse. Well, he said, yeah, you know, he's an idiot. Refuse. Fourth, cultivating gentleness. Cultivating gentleness. It doesn't come naturally. And lastly, being courteous to all. I've, I've talked to any number of waitresses over the years because they're the most abused member of our society. And how they will often, uh, I've queried them specifically on this question. Sundays are their worst days because Christians are the most ornery customers. We're the ones who aren't courteous. We demand courtesy. Isn't it interesting? Paul puts this as part of our good works. And these good works are exceedingly hard. Nothing but the power of the Spirit can, able, can enable us to take them on and to, and to live in them. And nowhere, nowhere does this rub more abrasively than when the authorities govern in ways that annoy or disturb us. I had somebody approached me the other day. I am a proud gun owner that disturbs anybody, you know, live with it. Um, I'm a proud gun owner. What happens if the government comes and says they're going to take my guns away? Is there anything in the Bible that says I have a right to carry a gun? No. Nope. They take my guns. They take my guns. My power isn't in my guns. My power is in Christ. It's irrelevant. But it has nothing to do with my soul. Not a right given in the Bible. The Second Amendment is in Scripture. The Constitution is not the 67th book of the Bible. Sorry. Think of how Daniel served in Babylon under the ruthless pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and was appointed to be leader over the wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the enchanters, and the magicians. Would you take that job? He did. Okay, this is where God has me. How do I function? How do I honor him where I am? Or consider Obadiah in 1 Kings 18. I love that that section. Obadiah, we're told, was Ahab's household steward. Now, Ahab was the most wicked of the kings over Israel after the divided kingdom, and yet he served in the most trusted place to the most wicked king and served as his household steward now, when they tried to kill the prophets of God, he said hey i can 't go along with that and he hid them in a cave. but in general, he served honorably to a wicked, pagan, perverse idol worshipping monster. How can that be then too, not not trying to harm others by our words or or blaspheming them, even on Facebook. Speaking of other people trying to influence people to think less of them. What business is that of ours? It's a category of good works that seldom makes our, it's, its way into our everyday thinking, but i got to move on. Thirdly, Paul addresses good works in our specific passage this morning then, in 3, 8 through 9. And this I've termed good works and focus a good work that we need to be engaged in is keeping our focus a biblical spiritual focus and so he lists them for us in the passage the first avoiding foolish controversies avoid foolish controversies secondly avoid getting tangled up in genealogies and yes that even still happens today that book that was so rampant uh, a decade ago or more um, uh, the, um, the Da Vinci Code made much out of Jesus' bloodline and who would have come after him it's all gobbledygook and I was shocked at how many Christians picked up on that stuff avoiding dissensions dissensions that are disagreements that lead to discord we're to avoid them not court them and avoiding quarrels about the law Foolish controversies. Have you ever had one? I've I've had somebody ask me this question. You know, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And they go, ooh, boy, gotcha. My response always is, can God make someone so stupid he'd ask that question? Come on, that's just foolishness. There's no reason to even get into that kind of a conversation. Uh, Or 2 Corinthians, in in 2.11, Paul warns against being outwitted by satan he says we're not ignorant of his designs but chief of satan's designs are division discouragement but really huge distraction so the christian is no longer focused on the things scripture calls us to but we're distracted by everything else around us and he distracts us by disinformation, untruth deliberately spread to create a false reality. You know, is, is the gospel being preached to the lost? Are Christians go, growing in the likeness of Christ? Is, is the church preparing us for heaven? And when individuals and the church leave those core essentials, that's how we lose our impact on the world, because we've lost our focus part of our good works is maintaining that focus developing or keeping that focus by avoiding foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law and again it isn't isn't being able to step away from all those things freeing wouldn't you rather not live agitated all the time or do you really want to just be irritated You know, the the first church of the perpetually griping. Who cares when we serve such a glorious Christ who's promised us such amazing things, has cleansed us by his own blood, and is preparing us for heaven. And then lastly, in verses 13 and 14, and I can't unpack this hugely today because I've got to leave something. Jason's going to be coming back to this, right? Good works in compassion. This is where we ordinarily think of good works most often, right? And that would be first in providing for others in missionary work. It's part of what the church does, what we do as individuals. And lastly, providing for others in any urgent need. And notice the term there is urgent, truly, necessarily, Sari. Not simply urgent because it's something I really want and want now the urgency of the gospel and the ministry of the word and the pressing needs of those around us in true mercy. Well, let me get to some applications, and I'll make these short. We're almost done. I have, my timer says I have four minutes left. It lies. I didn't start it until we were about halfway through. No. Good works are... I've got three here. Good works are not an optional nicety added to our salvation but part and parcel of our salvation. They can never be the means of salvation, but they are its only fruit. And we can't can't disconnect them from one another. Second, and I want to emphasize this especially, this way of serving and living Christ is infinitely easier than still living under sin. These are exceedingly freeing things. Not having to live inwardly chapped at the world all the time, and it's lunacy. I don't want to live there. And praise God, we don't have to. Not having to fight every cultural battle because our weapon is the gospel and living by the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. The world lives angry all the time. We don't have to. The world lives in fear all the time. We don't have to. The world flies from one crisis to another, trying to join the latest cause and cure the latest ill and combat the culture at every turn and save the world from every imagined threat. We don't have to. We're free from that. And how, is, how it is that in taking these up while abandoning the former ways of our old lost condition, we'll find, this is how we find, that his yoke is easy and his burden is, is light. In comparison to the bondage of sin, his burden is exceedingly light. So much more pleasurable. But then lastly, and with this I'll close, how all of this serves to reveal more and more of the glories of Christ to us. It's the ultimate answer to the old question we used to have on our wrists, what would Jesus do? Without His good works in retaining the right worldview, let me just put this all in context, if Jesus had not renounced ungodliness and worldly passions or failed to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the midst of the age in which he lived, if he did not live in the expectancy of what would be the reality of the other side of the cross, or as Hebrews 12:2 says, looking to Jesus who for the, the joy that was set before him could endure the cross, as a Christ who rejected all lawlessness and and who lived not as his own possession but as God's own possession, set on the Father's will and mission, if he hadn't lived with that worldview, he would have never been able to atone for our sin. This is Christ. This is all Paul is calling us to, is to say, take on the character of Christ. This is how he lived. This is how he thought. He's unpacked for us the very worldview that, that Christ lived from. And then, two, watch him by the power of the Spirit maintaining his good, his, his good works in relationships. Now, I know this is a struggle for some. Bear with me. But he was submissive to authorities. As in Luke two fifty one and Matthew 23, uh, 23. 3. Just think about it for a second. Do you think Jesus' parents were perfect? They were sinful dopes. So were his brothers. His brothers, Scripture tells us, didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. He lived in an unbelieving family. I mean, his mother knew. We don't know what happened to his father. He disappears from the scene early. But even his mother at one point showed up with his brothers at his house when he was so busy, and they said, we think he's lost his mind. But he was submissive to these people. How can that be? Wasn't he the son of God? Yes, he was. And he was constantly attending the synagogue. Now, think about this for a second. Do you imagine that the leaders of his synagogue were great preachers and paragons of virtue? I don't think so. He probably heard a lot of lousy preaching for the first 30 years of his life. A lot of scriptures taken out of context. A lot of man stuff inserted. But he was there, we find that it was his habit. Scripture tells us it was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Lord's Day. As a matter of fact, at one point, uh, he he tells the disciples, he says, look, the high priest, uh, uh, the Sadducees, they sit in, in Moses' seat. So whatever they tell you to do, do it. Just don't be like them. Why would he tell them that? Shouldn't they stand up and rebel? No. Not necessary. Preach the gospel. Live in the power of the Spirit. Or refraining from speaking evil of others. He was very plain spoken and he dealt openly with false teaching. But he didn't spend all of his time naming names. There is no New Testament hit list that Jesus lays out of, don't listen to this guy, don't listen to that guy, don't listen to that guy, this is a false teacher. He doesn't do that. How come? He doesn't need to. He talked about the Pharisees, but he didn't attack the high priest or others by name. It's virtually absent. Once he mentions Herod. There's never a word spoken about Caiaphas, Nothing about Annas, his father-in-law and high priest before him. both Sadducees and as Sadducees, they rejected most of the Old Testament, denied the reality of angels and even the afterlife, and didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus never mentions their names. Isn't that weird? He refused to be quarrelsome. Others tried to bait him all the time, but he usually made pretty short work of it. He avoided the big debates. They'd try and get him into it. But he'd make a couple of statements, say his piece, move on his way. is isn't where he lived. He, if there was anybody who could have walked the earth perpetually agitated all the time, it would have been Jesus. Don't you think he should have been turning around to the disciples on every occasion and saying, you are stupid, you are idiots, you don't get it? Come on! And he doesn't do that. It's astounding to me. Cultivating gentleness. See him with little children who seem to, to be attracted to him. Or the gentleness when he's at Talitha's bedside. A little girl. A little girl, raise up. being courteous to all that woman brought to him in adultery what does he do no doubt she was thrown in front of him naked and i know there's a lot you know what did jesus write in the sand doesn't matter if it mattered we'd have it in the scripture i'll tell you what he did while he was writing in the sand he wasn't looking at her and then when all the rest left he said Is there nobody left to condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, well, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. How gentle. And avoiding foolish controversies. Matthew 22, Sadducees, they go through that elaborate thing. This guy marries this woman and then he dies and she marries his brother and he dies and goes on through seven brothers and whose wife will she be in the resurrection he gives a short answer and moves on and avoid getting tangled up in genealogies. And in Luke 11:27, 27, uh, we see that as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of, the God, of God and keep it. My genealogy means nothing. Avoiding dissensions with Peter, when Peter was approached by, about paying the two drachma tax and disagreements that, that lead to discord, uh, Jesus says, look, don't give them offense. Go catch a fish. There's tax money in there for you and for me. Why should we give them offense? There's, there's no need. I find this astounding. Avoiding quarrels about the law. And again, Jesus often states his case and then just moves on. He doesn't get caught up in endless wrangling. He never lost sight of his mission and the cross and what needed to be accomplished, setting aside everything else to go and preach after healing. A great example in Mark chapter 1. You remember uh, Jesus went into um, uh, to, uh, Peter's house and healed His mother-in-law, I have a moral problem with healing my mother-in-law. That's another story. But but Jesus did. He went in and he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then uh, they brought a bunch of people to him to be healed. And he did that that day. And it says the next morning they got up and they were looking for him. And he was out praying. And and Peter said, Lord, Lord, don't you know everybody's looking for you? They want you to come and do this again. And he said, no, I need to go and preach because that's why I've been sent. Now, to the people who came to be healed, they wouldn't have thought his preaching was as important as their healing, but he did. Because he could heal them and they could still go to hell. They needed the gospel. And watch his life of good works and compassion and how he provided for others even in missionary work. Um, Acts 10 puts it out, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. His compassion when he was feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000. And notice he didn't ask who was a Christian before he broke the bread and the fish or raising the son of the widow at Nain, or Jairus' daughter, or weeping at Lazarus' tomb. And so much of this has been a regular part of how he conducted himself that when he dismissed Judas at the Last Supper, some of them thought he must be telling Judas to go give something to the poor. So it's just part and parcel of how he lived. Here's our Savior living this way, And as those being conformed to his image, we're given both the call and the privilege of entering into the very same pattern of life. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, in my present circumstances, living in the expectancy of Christ's return and reign, living as redeemed from lawlessness, living as a people who are God's own possession, rather than thinking of ourselves as belonging to ourselves, being submissive to authorities, refraining from speaking evil of others, refusing to be quarrelsome, cultivating gentleness, being courteous to all, avoiding foolish controversies, avoiding getting tangled up in genealogies, avoiding dissensions, and avoiding quarrels about the law, providing for others in missionary work and providing for others in urgent need this saying is trustworthy says paul to titus and i want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in god may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people what a glorious christ jesus is And no wonder we need to be a people filled with His own Spirit if we're going to be about these kinds of good works. Let me close with a quote from J.C. Ryle, great 19th century preacher. Are you alive in Christ? Then see that you prove it by your actions. Be a consistent witness. Let your words and works and ways and tempers all tell the same story. Let not your life be a poor, torpid life like that of a tortoise or sloth. Let it rather be an energetic, stirring life like that of a deer or a bird. Let your grace shine forth from all the windows of your conversation that those who live near you may see that the Spirit is abiding in your hearts. Let your light not be dim, flickering, uncertain. Let it burn steadily like the eternal fire on the altar, and never become low. Let the savor of your religion, like Mary's precious ointment, fill all the houses where you dwell. Be an epistle of Christ, so clearly written, penned in such large, bold characters, that he who runs may read it. Let your Christianity be so unmistakable, your eyes so single, your heart so whole, your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and whom you serve. Oh, dear reader, if you are quickened by the Spirit, no one ought to be able to doubt it. Our conversation should declare plainly that we seek a country.